we did know that these tensions were building over months and months, but we never expected that it would erupt into a full-blown military engagement in the middle of the city. Raga Makawi is a Sudanese-British researcher and book editor. She was in Khartoum, the capital of Sudan, when fighting between the country's rival armed forces broke out over the weekend. She woke up on Saturday morning to the sounds of gunshots in the distance that got closer and closer as the violence escalated. We heard the bombs drop and, uh, you know, the buildings shake. We would try and kind of, you know, uh, lie flat on the ground, try and hide in the pantry. So there was a lot of panic, there was a lot of anxiety. The electricity was out, water was out. We didn't have a surplus of food supplies. So all of these issues were kind of weighing heavy on us. And we stayed in under these conditions for three days before we braved the streets. We drove to a much more kind of secure part of the city where my parents are. And this is where we are now. But even though Raga and her parents are in a safer place right now, they have no idea what to do next. And as of now, I mean, a lot of families, including my parents, are not sure what to do. Should they stay in? Should they pack and leave? So yeah, that's, that's the general situation. There's a lot at stake in this conflict. Sudan is strategically a very important country. It's a nation of 46 million people in the Horn of Africa, which is a pretty volatile and unstable region. Catherine Horold is the post-East Africa bureau chief based in Nairobi. She's been covering the conflict in Sudan. It shares borders with Egypt and Ethiopia, some other of the regional powers. And then it also shares borders with nations that are really unstable and have lots of ungoverned spaces, like Libya, the Central African Republic, parts of Chad. So there's concern that this conflict might spill over the borders into the region, that there might be ungoverned spaces for Islamist terrorists to take hold. Most of all, there's humanitarian concerns for all of Sudan's people, many of whom were struggling to find enough food anyway. So there's a lot of people there that were already living on the edge, and this might just push them over it. From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm your guest host, Arjun Singh. It's Wednesday, April 19th. Today, what's led to the historic levels of violence in Khartoum that's pushing the country to civil war? Can you explain a little bit about what happened in Sudan over the weekend? So shooting broke out on Saturday morning, and although there had been a buildup of forces uh, around the capital for several weeks, that actual explosion of violence was quite unexpected. I know one woman who has been sheltering in the basement of her eight-year-old son's school for the last four days because she can't get home. Hospitals have run out of fuel for their generators, water and blood. Ambulances have been stopped. The streets are strewn with corpses in some areas. It's so bad. The smell of the death is everywhere. A friend of mine sent me a video of a lion walking down the street in his neighborhood. So the zoo has also been hit. And that some of the animals have escaped. The scale of the violence and how quickly it broke out caught people by surprise. And that's meant millions of people have been trapped, not just in the capital, but in cities all over Sudan. 
And what have aid agencies and international visitors within Sudan been experiencing? So foreigners have also been caught up in this violence. Many aid agencies and UN offices have been looted and invaded. Sometimes you've had people have to shut themselves up in bunkers while gunmen are roaming the compounds. You've had foreigners who've been shot, who've been robbed, who've been raped. Gunmen are coming into their homes, sometimes to rob them, sometimes to set up a position on their ceiling. Snipers have targeted the UN offices. So... There's a lot of fear and panic at the moment. And this is a country where people were living with their families. So you have mothers and fathers who are out of their mind with worry because they have young children with them. And there's no way to get them out. There's no way even for them to leave their homes. So we're talking on Wednesday morning. But where do things stand currently with this conflict right now? So immediately after the conflict broke out. People started hearing gunfire. Then they started hearing artillery fire. There was airstrikes in the heart of the capital. There's been heavy weapons used in residential areas. I think nine hospitals in the capital now have been hit by either mortars or grenades or something like this. They've had to close. So we're seeing fighting at its most intense in the most heavily built up areas of the city because the military and Mm -hmm. the rapid support force had their headquarters downtown. And many of their targets, like the television stations, are downtown. I mean, those are are gripping scenes that you're describing right now. And I'm very curious, Catherine, who are these groups that are fighting right now? And, And what has led them to fight at a level that seems to have reached such a fever pitch? So on the one hand, you have the country's military made up of its traditional elites, uh, and that's led by Lieutenant General Abdul Fattah al-Burhan. The military controls the Air Force. It obviously has a lot of heavy weapons. It has a lot of bases. On the other side, you have the Rapid Support Forces, which is a major paramilitary group led by Mohammed Hamdan Dagalo. Everybody calls him Hamati. Well, Hamati has been um, a member of the Rapid Support Forces or their predecessors, um, the Janjaweed. They've gone under several names for a long time now. He comes from a very wealthy trading family from the province of Darfur. And the RSF, as it's known, for heinous human rights abuses, including gang rapes, village burnings, mass killings of civilians. They also have some significantly heavy weapons they've got anti-tank missiles, they have mortars, they have artillery, but they don't have an air force, but they do have mobility. They have a lot of pickup trucks mounted with things like anti-aircraft guns. And this is the style of fighting that we've seen a lot in Darfur from them. And I think he blames the military for shooting first. They blame him for shooting first. But it was clear that these two very powerful men were on a collision course. So what exactly is the end goal of this conflict? What do both sides ultimately want at the end of the day? So both of these men want total victory. I mean, these two men were really the government. Burhan has been acting as de facto head of state. Hamidi has been sort of de facto vice president. So there hasn't really been a check on their ambitions or or on what they were doing. They have said that they want the other side defeated, 
And both of them see this conflict as an existential threat. Hamity said that, I think it was the day that the conflict erupted, that he was either going to drag Burhan to court or see him die like a dog. Burhan has also said that he is very confident that he is going to defeat Hamity as well. And um, both of them are trying to use a little bit the language of human rights and, you know, democracy and things like this. But it rings particularly hollow when you're hunkered down in a neighborhood and a mortar has just crashed through the roof of the local maternity ward. There's not a lot of ways to, to rein them in right now. Catherine, could you help put this current conflict in context of Sudan's recent history. What led to this moment right now? Well, I think we we have to look back to the reign of former President Omar al-Bashir, who took power in a coup in 1989 against a democratically elected government. He ruled for 30 years with an iron fist. There was wars all around the periphery of Sudan. He was indicted by the International Criminal Court for genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes because of acts committed in the the region of Darfur. But eventually, we saw growing protests against his rule, especially in 2018 and 2019. Persistent protests have rocked the country since December, sparked by the government's attempt to raise the price of bread and an economic crisis that has led to fuel and cash shortages. Opposition figures have been calling for the military to help negotiate an end to the president's nearly three decades in power and a transition to democracy. That started off with people protesting just about the cost of living. The country had been hit with hyperinflation when South Sudan became independent in 2011 and took its oil fields with it. And so you had these people coming out on the streets to protest. And then a lot of pro-democracy activists got involved as well. But the police really started clamping down on them. The security forces killed hundreds of protesters. And it became this sort of bloody cycle of, of crackdown and protest and crackdown and protest. On Thursday, the country's president was overthrown in a coup by the African nation's armed forces. They announced a two-year period of military rule, followed by elections. President Omar al-Bashir was forced to step down in 2019. Bashir was forced to step down partly because of growing pro-democracy protests against him and partly because he finally lost the support of the army and Burhan was one of the people who helped, you know, take him out of power. What was that moment like in Sudan? I mean, that sounds like a real inflection point for the country. How were Sudanese citizens reacting to that? Well, a lot of Sudanese citizens were out on the streets. The moment that the news spread that al-Bashir had been forced to step down was huge. You saw um, street parties, you saw celebratory graffiti. You know, it felt like the Arab Spring. It felt like the revolution had been successful. It was a moment of euphoria, a very brief one. And during that time, there was a joint military-civilian government that was set up. But soon things started to go wrong. After the break... I asked Catherine how these two military generals formed an alliance following the ousting of President Omar al-Bashir, and then why that alliance collapsed. We'll be right back. 
2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. During this time period, this period that you're describing, filled with a lot of hope, filled with a lot of passion, it sounds like, from Sudanese citizens, where were these two generals during that time? So Burhan is um, one of those who forced um, al-Bashir to step down. He actually formally took over power and then resigned the next day, you know, just feeding this this euphoria and this feeling that it was a new chapter. Hamati was also there. He was also head of this paramilitary unit. So they were still players, but they were in the background while this joint civilian-military government was set mm. up. So these two generals are there. Like you said, they're a little bit in the background. What was public sentiment like towards these two generals during that time period in 2019? Well, I think public sentiment generally was pretty hopeful. There was a feeling that maybe Sudan could break itself out of this cycle of bloody crackdowns. There was a feeling that maybe there could be Um, a hope of things like democracy and accountability and that these might not just be be aspirations, but that they might be something within reach. And all that ended in 2021 when that government was overthrown by uh, Burhan and Hamati. After Bashir's overthrow, Burhan was sworn in as Sudan's interim leader and was tasked with chairing the Joint Military Civilian Council to steer the country towards democracy. But now he's dissolved the council, becoming the de facto head of Sudan. So the government that they brought down was a joint civilian military council that was set up after Bashir was deposed. And one of the things that that council was doing was examining a very large number of state-controlled enterprises. So basically, the civilians were trying to bring a lot more transparency and a lot more accountability to governments And that threatened a lot of the entrenched elites. And so you have these two generals. They work together to overthrow the government, and then they seem to turn on each other. What was the nature of their relationship like, and why did they then turn on each other after overthrowing this government? You know, that they were partners of convenience for this. Both of them needed each other to support the coup. But there has always been rivalries there. And there's been clashes between the two forces in Darfur in the lead up to this fighting in the capital. But the thing that really lit the fuse, and it was a long running fuse, the international community and um, both parties had agreed to this draft deal in December that was supposed to lay out power sharing and lay out a path to returning to civilian government and for integration of the RSF into the National Army. But there's a lot of disagreements on the timelines for that and who would report to who. The draft made Hemeti equal to Burhan, and the military didn't like that. So that deal was supposed to be finalized this month. And instead of a final peace deal, 
letting us, you know, return back to civilian government, we have airstrikes in, in cities around the country. So after this coup takes place, these two are now mired in conflict with each other. As you've described, Catherine, there are horrific scenes taking place in the capital, Khartoum. Tell me a little bit more about the resources that these two men have been able to marshal together. Who is funding the sides in this conflict? Where are they getting their equipment and the ability to be able to wage this war? Well, both of them can draw on substantial war chests. The military controls, I think, the country's largest bank, its biggest agricultural company. There was a report by the Center for Advanced Defense Studies that listed hundreds of companies that were controlled by the state. Mm. So the military has a very large war chest, and it can also manufacture its own ammunition. On the part of the RSF, Hemeti himself is extremely wealthy, as are his family. And there's also been a lot of work by Global Witness and other organizations that track conflict financing, looking at his web of companies. And his interests include things like gold mine, real estate, import-export, trading. There's a lot of companies that are both controlled by his family and do business with the RSF. They have a lot of Mm -hmm. offshore accounts. So, you know, he's a very wealthy man. A lot of that sounds like resources from inside of the country. I'm curious, Catherine, are there resources coming from outside of Sudan that are also playing a role in this conflict right now? So there's been a lot of discussion about the possible involvement of Sudan's neighbors and whether the conflict might spill over their borders. Egypt has certainly backed the military. And I think a lot of regional powers are waiting to see who's going to come out on top. You said Egypt has backed the military. Egypt is a very long-standing ally with the United States. Has the United States had any role to play in this conflict so far? I think the United States right now is really focused on trying to achieve a ceasefire that will let civilians leave the battlefields. So there has been two failed attempts at having a ceasefire so far. One that was supposed to last three hours and one that was supposed to last 24 hours. I know that the Secretary Mm -hmm. of State, the U.S. Secretary of State, has spoken with both sides, urging them to do that. I know that there's a lot of countries and international aid organizations that are desperate to evacuate people. I've also read that Russia has been involved in this conflict. Can you tell me more about that? So uh, Russia has long-standing ties to Sudan. In 2020, the U.S. sanctioned a couple of companies based in Sudan for helping the head of the Wagner Group evade U.S. sanctions. Now, the Wagner Group is a sort of amorphous group of companies that helps the Russian state that has provided fighters in conflict areas like Libya and Ukraine, and that also has extensive mining interests in Africa. One of those companies is involved in gold trading, and another one signed a deal with a Sudanese security firm for millions of dollars for security services. And in return, it also organized flights for Russians on Sudanese military planes and supplied weapons. On the day that the Ukraine war broke out, Hemeti, the head of the RSF, was in Moscow uh, visiting, and he came back talking about improving ties with Russia and potentially opening a a Russian base on the Red Sea on Sudan's coastline. 
Catherine, does it seem like this conflict is isolated to Sudan and its borders right now? Or could this spill over into border nations and other parts of Africa? And what would the implications of that be? There's great fear that if this conflict drags on, that it could spill over into the borders of Sudan's neighbors. So if it goes on for a long time, it's very likely that we'll see lots of violence in Darfur. That will affect Chad, which is an oil-rich nation whose security is really intertwined with what happens in Sudan, especially the Darfur region. The two countries have often sponsored rebels on each other's territory. There's also a risk that it could involve the Central African Republic, which is a very weakly governed nation um, that has a lot of diamonds and gold and has seen a, a really vicious civil war there and where Wagner is operating. There's Libya sort of to the north, which has a lot of ungoverned spaces where Wagner is operating and where we've seen a lot of Sudanese mercenaries fighting in the conflict there. And Egypt, of course, has been a longstanding ally of Sudan and is very firmly behind the army chief in this conflict. In fact, the RSF is currently holding some Egyptian soldiers. Those soldiers have just today been moved to the capital. It's not clear why they were moved into the capital, which is the scene of intense fighting. But Egypt will obviously be very concerned about the safety of its soldiers, which it says were there for a training mission. Are there efforts to try and stabilize or de-escalate this conflict right now? I think there's a lot of efforts to try to de-escalate it. Um, I know the Americans have been making calls, the Europeans have been making calls, regional states have been making calls, the Arab League. There's a lot of regional and international concern about this. But right now, because both sides feel threatened by the other side, feel that the other side is, is going to annihilate them, then those calls really haven't had too much effect on the violence. And what about the state of democracy in Sudan? I mean, you had described such a period of hope earlier. Where does democracy go after this? Are there still efforts to try and create a democratic government? I think that that is a really important goal, and it's one that's really, really important to the Sudanese people. Many of them have been extremely vocal about not wanting to be ruled by either one of these men. But right now, the most urgent priority is to stop the shooting for long enough so that people on the front lines are allowed to leave those neighborhoods. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you so much. Catherine Horold is the post-East Africa Bureau Chief. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Alana Gordon. It was mixed by Sam Bear and edited by Lucy Perkins. Thanks also to Sean Carter. If you want to show your support for the show, please subscribe to The Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash subscribe. I'm Arjun Singh. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.